and interviews on Access Sacramento and The Voice. I'm Steve Lerman. You can hear this program at 96.5 FM in the Sacramento area. Today's program features the end of American exceptionalism with Andrew Basevich. Andrew examines the triple crises facing America, an economy in disarray that can no longer be fixed by relying on expansion abroad, a government transformed by an imperial presidency into a democracy in name only, and an engagement in endless wars that has severely undermined the nation. Andrew recommends a respect for the limits of power and an aversion to the claims of exceptionalism and skepticism of easy solutions, especially those involving force. Andrew is convinced that Americans must live within their means. speaker is a professor at Boston University, specializing in security studies, American foreign policy, and American diplomatic and military history. Professor Basevich graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point 
1969, and he served in Vietnam 1970 to 1971. Later, he held military posts in Germany, the United States, and the Persian Gulf up to his retirement from the service with the rank of colonel in the early 1990s. He holds a PhD in American diplomatic history from Princeton University and taught at West Point, at Johns Hopkins University, and, uh, and, and at Johns Hopkins before joining the faculty at Boston University in 1998. In 2004, Dr. Basevich was a Berlin Prize Fellow at the American Academy in Berlin. He also has been a fellow at the Paul H. Nitzis School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins, the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, and the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. His essays and reviews have appeared in a variety of scholarly and general interest publications, and his op-ed pieces have appeared in the major American newspapers and magazines. And he's appeared on television shows such as Moyers and Company, Democracy Now!, and The Colbert Report. His books include Washington Rules, The, Mil the Limits of Power, The Long War, and The New American Militarism, among others. His latest volume has, came out this year, Breach of Trust, How Americans Failed Their Soldiers and Their Country. And that book will be on sale after the lecture in the lobby. Professor Basevich acknowledges Charles A. Beard and William Appleman Williams, the two eminent 20th century American historians, as laying the intellectual foundation for his own thinking about American history and foreign policy. Time Magazine has called Professor Basevich one of the most provocative, as in thought-provoking, national security writers out there today. Professor Basevich lives in Walpole, Massachusetts with his wife, Nancy, a retired teacher and now a painter. They have three daughters, Jennifer, Amy, and Katie, and four grandchildren, Sophia, eight, Gabriel, three, Andrew, two, and Alex, five months. In his spare time, Professor Basevich likes to write, and he's written a lot. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor Andrew J. Basevich. Well, it's really a, a great honor uh, to be the first Allworth uh, lecturer. Of course, I uh, never met Martha Allworth, uh, but I'm sitting there listening to uh, her son give that tribute. And, I, and you know, I basically almost everything I write, I, I, I conclude on a pessimistic note. I mean, my new book, Breach of Trust: How Americans Failed Their their soldiers and their country. But I was born in Illinois and grew up in Indiana. My wife uh, is a Chicagoan, so our families are rooted in the Midwest. And although we've lived in New England now for, what, 15 years, and we really love New England, I still feel that connection to the Midwest. And, and, and it really seems to me that if the country's ever going to get itself back in, in the right direction, it's going to be because somehow the Midwestern uh, perspective uh, will make itself effectively heard. Uh, Tom mentioned that two of the people I admire most among historians are Charles Beard, born in Indiana, William Appleman Williams, born in Iowa. Uh, and it is that Midwestern mindset that somehow or other will save the country if the people of the Midwest ever can somehow uh, 
articulate the perspective of the heartland as I guess Martha Allworth did with such effectiveness here in your community. So I'm going to talk for about 40 minutes and uh, then very much look forward to uh, the questions that you may have uh, and we will indeed make sure students get to go to the front of the line so that they can have the first shot. During the 1990s, a quartet of what we might call big ideas were thought to determine the future course of international politics. In the realm of ideology, the first of those big ideas was the end of history. That was a phrase coined by a political scientist called Francis Fukuyama, a title of a famous article he wrote and then a famous book. And the idea behind the end of history was that the conclusion of the Cold War signified a final resolution of the great ideological conflicts that had dominated great power politics in the 20th century. According to Fukuyama, all of the basic questions, the big questions, had now been settled once and for all. And that there now existed only a single model to which nations around the world could turn if they intended to achieve any kind of success, and that model was democratic capitalism. In the realm of political economy, the second of the four big ideas was globalization. And sort of the equivalent to Fukuyama in, in, with regard to globalization perhaps was the famous New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman. And globalization said that a, a process of economic integration and development was transforming human existence. That the world was now flat and fast and connected. And that one of the implications of globalization was really to bring an end to power politics. That to the extent that there would be any future competition in the political realm, it would be a competition that would focus on getting rich. And indeed, this was a competition that everybody could win. Globalization was going to make politics into a win-win proposition. Implied, but not necessarily spoken, was the notion that globalization also implied the universalization of a particular set of values, our values. That ultimately, globalization really meant the Americanization of the entire world. Access Sacramento broadcasts great speeches and interviews every Sunday from 6 to 8 p.m. Or you can get the podcast at greatspeechesandinterviews.blogspot.com. The third of the four big ideas is the one that Tom already mentioned. And this is an idea that applied in the realm of statecraft or international relations. Indispensable nation. As Tom said, coined by Madeleine Albright back during the Clinton era, but also adopted by President Clinton himself. And according to this notion, according to the notion of the indispensable nation, the end of the 20th century found the United States having assumed a position of unique global leadership. And that 
This position of global leadership was one that in fact was conceded by all, at least in the near term. The United States was the indispensable nation because the United States had no peer competitor. The United States in the 1990s had become the sole superpower. The fourth big idea was in the realm, in the military realm. And this idea was called full spectrum dominance. And I can't identify a particular author of this idea, but what full spectrum dominance meant was that the end of the Cold War found the United States not simply in a position of leadership, but found the United States in possession of unmatched and unprecedented military capabilities. That thanks to full spectrum dominance, the United States had within reach, within its grasp, permanent military supremacy beyond challenge. And that here, in military supremacy, lay the real foundation of America's claim to being the indispensable nation. Well, what exactly was this notion of full-spectrum dominance and where did the idea come from? Well, by the 1990s, remember we're here right in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War, and as I'll mention in a couple of occasions, also at the time of Operation Desert Storm, the first Persian Gulf War, 1991. By this time, national security experts, both soldiers and civilians, I would, I would emphasize, had come to believe that technology, and especially information technology, was changing the very nature of war. Technology, they believed, was making the battlefield transparent. That was the term they used. The technology was eliminating what Clausewitz had referred to as friction and fog. Technology also promised to solve the problem of collateral damage. And in that regard, technology, information technology, held the promise of making war more humane and therefore more useful politically and therefore more moral. That is to say, technology was making it possible for forces, for technologically sophisticated forces, to kill the people who needed to be killed while preserving from harm the innocent. By extension, two other points applied to this notion of full-spectrum dominance. The first was that there really was no limit to this technologically driven change in warfare. And second, even more important, that of all the nations in the world that were positioned to exploit this new potential of warfare, the United States certainly was way out in front that it was our technological capacity that was going to enable us to secure permanent military dominion. So, full-spectrum dominance was the end of history applied to war. Well, well, of these four big ideas of the 1990s, full-spectrum dominance was the least talked about, and yet I'd want to argue tonight uh, to you all, turned out to be arguably the most important. Full-spectrum dominance underwrote the assumption that American supremacy in the realm of hard power would facilitate and guarantee the process of globalization and give way to American claims to being the indispensable nation. people in the back are not going to be able to see this, but the people in the front will slightly. 
And this is the training aid I carry with me in all my talks. This, I'll explain it to you, is the cover of the New York Times Magazine dated March 28, 1999. And I'll describe what's on the cover of the magazine. It's, of course, a fist. And the fist is painted red, white, and blue. And what some of you in the front can see in the bottom right, next to the fist, is the text, What the World Needs Now. What you can't read is the smaller text right beneath it. What the world needs now. For globalism to work, America can't be afraid to act like the almighty superpower that it is. So speaketh the New York Times. Matter of fact, if you took a look at the article inside this cover of the magazine written by Tom Friedman, it includes the following text. Quote, the hidden hand of the market. Remember, this is Friedman, the promoter of globalization. The hidden hand of the market will never work without the hidden fist. McDonald's cannot flourish without McDonnell Douglas, the designer of the F-15. And the hidden fist that keeps the world safe for Silicon Valley's technologies is called the United States Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marine Corps. Now, this is the sort of thinking that prevails, again, not simply in military circles, but in intellectual circles, when 9-11 occurs. And this is the sort of thinking that therefore played a very powerful role in shaping our response, the nation's response to 9-11. First, by way of example, there was the immediate assertion, questioned by very few of our fellow citizens, that an open-ended global war on terrorism was the right response to 9-11. Here's Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. This is just about my favorite quotation from the George W. Bush era. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld speaking at a press conference on September 18, 2001. So that's one week after 9-11. We have a choice, Rumsfeld said. Either to change the way we live, which is unacceptable, or to change the way they live. And we chose the latter. Well, changing the way they live, when they clearly refers to the, what, 1.4, 1.5 billion inhabitants of the Islamic world, is a mighty tall order. Why would someone, presumably as smart as Donald Rumsfeld, make such a claim? Well, he did so at least in part because Rumsfeld had convinced himself, as many others had convinced themselves, that the United States military as it existed at that moment in time was unstoppable and unbeatable. After all, one of the big ideas of the 1990s had taught us that war had become our strong suit, the area of human endeavor in which the United States had left all others behind. Therefore, people like Rumsfeld, and not simply Rumsfeld, had a very high level of confidence that the United States could therefore determine the character of the war on which it was embarking. To put it another way, the global war on terrorism would unfold on our terms. It would essentially be a high-tech, conventional conflict, a series of short, sharp fights that would produce quick and successful decisions gained at a reasonable cost. This is what people in Washington expected in the wake of 9-11. But note this crucial point. 
So when the Bush, Bush, Bush administration decided to launch on this global war on terrorism, it did so assuming the forces readily available would, would suffice to achieve victory. To put it another way, we went to war, or when we went to war, there was no serious reordering of national priorities. There was no effort to mobilize the country. There wasn't even any expansion of U.S. forces. The Bush administration went to war, and the rest of us went back to business as usual. Indeed encouraged, as you will remember, by George W. Bush himself to go shopping, and go to Disney World, and live life the way it was meant to be lived. Initially, there were some signs that this might work out. The Afghan campaign in the fall of 2001 indeed was read as a confirmation of U.S. military supremacy. Many of you will remember how quickly relatively small U.S. forces with Afghan allies succeeded in overthrowing the Taliban government. That success, that early success, seemed to show that the basic approach of the Bush administration was correct, that victory could be won rather easily and swiftly. But if Afghanistan was step one in the global war on terrorism, Iraq was step two. And indeed, in the eyes of people in the Bush administration, Iraq was the crucial step. Recall that before 9-11, for decades, U.S. policy in the Middle East had sought to shore up the region's precarious stability. In a part of the world that always seemed to be teetering on the brink of chaos, averting war had formed the centerpiece of U.S. policy. Now, however, the administration of George W. Bush contrived a different approach. Through war, the United States would destabilize the region and then remake it to the benefit of all. Here's a comment made not long after 9-11 by Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz, quoting, the United States may not be able to lead countries through the door of democracy, but where that door is locked shut by a totalitarian deadbolt, American power may be the only way to open it up. Or here's Condoleezza Rice, who was uh, at that time President Bush's national security advisor. She said, the transformation of the Middle East offered the only guarantee that it, would, that only guarantee that it will no longer, it, the Middle East, will no longer produce ideologies of hatred, that lead men to fly airplanes into buildings in New York or Washington. Transformation, transformation. Now there is a word redolent with ambition and vanity. We're bailing out Wall Street bankers today. A trillion dollars just tossed away. But the money ain't trickling down to you and me yet. It's paying for the gas in their corporate jets. Yeah, it's paying for the gas in their corporate jets. Fat cat bankers all cutting their deals. While common folk everywhere are cutting their meals. The government asks us for our trust. Hell no, we say in mass disgust. Hell no, we say in mass disgust. Wall Street greed has rigging up the game. Masters of the universe, paragons of shame. Fooling with the 
people's lives and taking us all for fools. Taking us all for fools. Bankers sucking up the bailout bucks and covering up their tracks. $20 billion in bonuses gone and they're giving us nothing back. Nothing back. Brain dead government asleep at the wheel. Nobody watching as the fat cats steal. Hedge fund gurus grabbing their share of money that was never theirs. Of money that was never theirs. Wall Street greed heads rigging up the game. Masters of the universe, paragons of shame Fooling with the people's lives And taking us all for fools Taking us all for fools So hear my humble little verse You masters of the universe With mindless greed, yeah, you duped us all And now it's time take the fall and now it's time that you take the fall some folks say it had to be this way it's just the lumps you take in life but I say there's one way this game should go ship the bastards off to Guantanamo ship the bastards off to Guantanamo Wall Street greed has rigging up the game Masters of the universe, paragons of shame Fooling with the people's lives And taking us all for fools Taking us all for fools They're taking us all for fools They're taking us all for fools And now for something completely different <laughs> 